The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offering in their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. And this shall be the priests due from the people, from whose offering is sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep, they shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomach. The first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, the first fleece of your sheep, you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires to the place the Lord will choose and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he received from the sale of his patrimony. So you see the compensation for the priests. They did not get a territorial inheritance. Well, where did the priests live? Yeah, the, the Levitical cities were 48 cities. The priests got some of those where they lived, but they didn't get territory, like places to raise crops and things like that. So how were they provided for? Yes, the Lord was their inheritance, and he shared with them, allowing them to eat from his own table. They got a portion of the sacrifices, the first fruits, etc. The Levites got the tithes, and so God was arranging for those that devoted themselves to the work of the Lord to be provided for by the people. Reminds me a little bit of the New Testament principle. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, the one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches it. That idea that the one who's giving the valuable service in teaching is appropriate for those who are being taught to share financial resources with that person. And so that's how God provided for the uh, priests. Comments and questions? Okay. We move to the prophets then, which is another leadership role among the people. Uh, verses 9 to 14. When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving to you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. For there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through a fire, or anyone who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, who one her or one who interprets omens or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells or a medium or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord your God drives them out from among you. And you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you dispose listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. We always want to know about the future. We want to know about God and what he'll do. We want to find ways of seeking the will of God, seeking to know the will of the faiths, the will of luck, the will of the angels, or whatever it is that we think is controlling things. We want to have some guidance. Men just inherently sense the need for guidance. We know that we are not capable of on our own to really know the right thing to do, to know the future, and things like that. So, 
you know, there's kind of a, a void if we don't seek the Lord. You know, if you don't seek the Lord, you want to find some kind of a source of guidance and instruction. Do you remember the passage in Ezekiel chapter 21? <laughs> this is kind of funny. This is where Nebuchadnezzar came to the fork in the road. He was going to attack some direction. He could either attack uh, to the east, Ammon, when he came to that fork in the road. Or he could go to the west and attack Jerusalem. And the question was, which side would he take? Well, Ezekiel 21.21, where the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the way, at the head of the two ways, to use divination. He shakes the arrows. He consults the household idols. He looks at the liver. Into his right hand come the divination Jerusalem to set battering rams, to open the mouth for slaughter, to lift up the voice of the battle cry, to set battering rams against the gates, to cast up rams, to build a siege wall. Now, apparently, Nebuchadnezzar shook arrows. I'm not sure how that worked. He used divination. That would probably be consulting with spiritists and those that talk to the dead and things like that. And he, he consulted, uh, he, he looked at, at the liver. Now, apparently, they would cut open an animal, examine the liver, and people who were skilled at this could actually, by looking at the liver, tell you what was going to happen, tell you what was the lucky choice, which way to go, things like that. I have no idea what the principles were of discerning that from a liver. Kind of reminds you of things today. What, what kind of things do people look to today that, that want to know, you know, good guidance, but uh, but they don't go to the Word of God to do it. Tarot, the tarot cards, horoscopes, tea leaves, stars, stars, yeah, palm reading. It's all kinds of things, and a lot of other things. In Brazil, there's all sorts of uh, communication with the dead and, and various kinds of ways to, to determine, you know, the, the wise course to follow, etc. People look for something. It may not be anything any uh, more sensible than, than looking at an animal liver, but, but people want to find some way of knowing the truth. God condemned all those things because those were not uh, ways of trusting the Lord. Those were pagan ways of seeking God's will. God did not intend for his people to be like that. You might think about Daniel too. You remember uh, how Nebuchadnezzar, apparently on that occasion, began to be suspicious of the quote-unquote wise man. Remember how he had that dream? And what did he ask them for? Tell him the dream. What did they want to do? You tell us the dream, we'll give him the interpretation. Wonder why they were more interested in giving the interpretation than in telling the dream. I can give the interpretation. You tell me the dream, I'll tell you what it means. Uh, trying to come up with what the dream was. I think Nebuchadnezzar was, was on that occasion suspicious of the wisdom of these wise men. He was kind of testing them. You know, if they really know the interpretation, why can't they tell him the dream itself? And you remember, they were unable to do that, and they were trying to find a polite way to tell Nebuchadnezzar that he was act asking something totally unreasonable. And uh, he was ready to kill them if that had been for Daniel's intervention. But, but uh, the, the point is that it's very common for people to want guidance. We want to know the right thing to do. The Lord's Word is perfect. 
that gives us everything we need. But what if we don't have that? What if we don't believe in that or trust in that? People are going to go somewhere. And God condemns those wrong sources for seeking His will. I believe He continues to condemn them. I believe it's wrong for Christians to seek to know God's will through some sort of divination, psychic, horoscope, astrology, and things like that. We should only seek to know God's will and His word. Comments and questions? I would have loved to have seen the wish at Endor when Saul went to visit her. I'm here the very first king broke so many of the God's, you know, principles, but I would just love to see how God used that, you know, that thing for his purposes in that event. Yes, yes. I he is Samuel's appearance seemed to give her a good skin. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you see so many examples in the Bible of people casting lots from Saul and Jonathan who ate who ate food and broke that that vow uh, to even choosing an apostle in Acts chapter one, uh, can Christians cast lots, call it faith in God, take a deck of cards, black and cut it, black card means no, red card means yes. What where would you put casting lots in this? Well, uh, first of all, I believe that throughout the Bible, uh, at least up into the choice of Matthias that God ordained some casting of lots. They cast lots to determine what territory each tribe would receive. They cast lots for the priesthood and the, the various shifts that the priest would, would work throughout the year. Um, lots were cast for many things. In Proverbs chapter 16, uh, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So the idea is that when people with faith in God cast lots, they were allowing the Lord to make the choice, to make the decision. Perhaps the Urim and the Thummim that the priests used to consult the Lord were some means of casting lots or something similar to that, to be able to inquire of the Lord with the ephod, where the Urim and the Thummim were, to find out what God's will was. So I think casting lots from a God-ordained standpoint, was a means of consulting God and seeking God's will. That was not considered to be a pagan means of determining the future. Now, the question as to whether or not we could cast lots, things a bit more complicated. The last time we know about the people of God casting lots was in Acts chapter 1, where Matthias was chosen as the 12th apostle in Judas's place. I don't know of any example casting lots after that. Um, I think there would be a couple of things to consider. One is perhaps the completeness of the revelation in Christ would supersede the casting of lots. Also, when you see casting lots in the Bible, uh, you see guidance given by a God-ordained priest or prophet or whatever. I'm not sure how I would know that God was agreeing to my uh, card drawing technique and uh, being willing to give his advice on some particular point. So I'm not sure we have even enough information at this point to know when casting lots could possibly give us the will of God or not. So I would be inclined to say that I would have more hesitance about believing that that was a way of determining God's will today. But I think it certainly was in the past. Tim? I was going to say, furthermore, both of the options in casting lots in Acts 1 
would have both been pleasing to God. It's not like either one was sinful in any way. Yes, that's certainly true. Uh, You know, I'm not saying that I don't think God superintends things. I think he certainly does do that. And there may be some situations that things happen by chance, but it's not by chance, it's by God's will. Um, I'm just not sure that I know how I can set up a test case and say, God, you tell me by this that this is your will. Yes? How do Christian Christians take other people's beliefs in these divinations, and how seriously should we uh, consider our involvement in these on any level? Well, I'm not sure what you mean by how seriously take their beliefs. There are people who seriously believe it. And and so I think we need to show them that these are not appropriate ways of determining God's will, and here is the way to know God's will. So I think we should oppose that. And I don't think we should be involved in any way that promotes or encourages or practices some pagan method of determining the future and determining God's will. Yes, Tim. Can you just uh, also speak to us using hunches or circumstances to determine the will of God and to speak against that as well? Well, at least I don't think those are appropriate ways to determine God's will. I mean, the thing of it is, there are a lot of people who thought God was saying something that he hasn't. It wasn't. It hasn't been. Um, and, and just relying on how I feel about something or what my intuition is, there's no indication that that's from God. You know, I really need to look at objective sources of seeing what God's will is. Other questions and comments? Right, that led us to uh, some interesting things. Uh, 15 to 22. <laughs> Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desire of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid. Well, we've got the contrast between what man discovers on his own in some sort of pagan way with what God provides. And uh, God's promise was to provide Israel with prophets, with uh, people who could, by inspiration, reveal the message of God. There was not going to be any need to resort to divination or magic or whatever to determine God's will. He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. And uh, so I believe that in this, Moses is establishing the concept of the prophetic role, the prophetic institution, that 
Israel doesn't need to seek help from diviners. As needed, God will provide prophets, inspired men, who will re- reveal the message they needed to know. Remember that in this whole context, Moses is talking about judges, about kings, about priests, and here now about prophets. As he talks about the prophet line God will give, that's in contrast with the false presumptuous prophet of 20 to 22. So I would consider Moses to be almost the prototype prophet. I believe he was more or less the beginning prophet of God in the Old Testament. You may remember the passage passages where, where Moses, uh, for example, in Acts chapter 3, was considered to be essentially the first of the prophets, and then from Samuel and onward, and so forth. Um, I do believe that as many passages in the Old Testament, this passage not only speaks about the prophets as a line, as a class of people, but that it looks forward in a specific way, in an ideal way, to Jesus as the ultimate prophet. Uh, In John 1, John was asked, are you the prophet? And uh, in John 7, they talked about whether Jesus was the prophet. I believe they meant this prophet. The Jews were looking for a prophet like Moses. I believe this passage encompasses the whole prophetic office, but that it does also look in the ideal to one prophet par excellence, one prophet above all. And I believe Jesus was that prophet. Acts 3.22 and Acts 7.37, I believe both identify Jesus as the ultimate ideal fulfillment of this. He was the prophet like Moses. He was faithful, he was a mediator, he was a revealer, he was another Moses-like prophet, the greatest of all of them. Think about the definition of a prophet here. In verse 18, I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. That's really what a prophet does. A prophet gets the words from God and he communicates them. So a prophet is the one who becomes the source of divine revelation, a source of information to the people. So God takes the initiative, and God gives him the message, and he speaks it. For that reason, prophetic messages are infallible. Everything a prophet says is exactly true, because God superintends the passing of the message. But there were also false prophets. Not everybody who said that he was a prophet was a true prophet. He speaks in verse 20 of the presumptuous prophet that I have not commanded to speak. You know, almost every time God does something, somebody else tries to counterfeit. So you get this true prophet, and then you get this charlatan who comes along and who says, I'm a prophet of God, and uh, he speaks in the name of some other God. We'll kill him. You know, or he says something's going to happen. It doesn't happen that way. That's a sure bet then he was not a prophet of God. Because if God had revealed a certain message, it would always happen. Look. What about the prophet, 1 Kings 13, the young prophet of life? Yes. 
there was a prophet who spoke the word of God faithfully. He was a true prophet who then turned away from God because he listened to the lying words of a false prophet. And therefore he was killed. But the false prophet did die. The false prophet did not die. Um, but the, the man who listened to the false prophet did. There are dangers both for the false prophet and for the one who acts upon the false prophecy. Yes? In verse 22 it says, if the thing does not come about, you know it's not true. Well, like Isaiah prophesied, I know, six or seven hundred years before Christ, the people would never have seen that prophecy come true. Could they then assume it wasn't true? You know, because if they don't see it happen, well, then it wasn't true. Well, not all prophecies, first of all, were for the specific time period of the prophet. For example, Daniel's prophecy. Daniel was prophesying things that God specifically said, seal these up, these are for many days in the future. So that was not going to be something they could confirm for a long time. And that's what God specifically said, this was not for now. Um, there are many prophecies that have both a near term and an ultimate fulfillment. Um, they could see whether or not the near term was fulfilled. I think that's true in Isaiah 7. They would not be able to verify the ultimate fulfillment for many hundred years. Um, so this is not the only qualification. There are other ways of determining if the prophet's a true prophet. But if a prophet actually makes a prophecy about something in the near term and it doesn't happen, but that's one way of falsifying the prophet. You know he's not a true prophet in that case. Yes? You just mentioned there are many ways to determine if a prophet is true or false. This passage made me think about what we just read in chapter 13, where even if the miracle came true, or the whatever, the prophecy came true, if he was um, speaking against the express will of God and saying, let's go worship idols, well, you know that's not something that God wants. And so it seems to me that you never go against the express will of God that you know, regardless of what might happen. Um, and then in other cases, you can use the prophecy coming true to, to kind of set the prophet. Uh, absolutely. When the message is not corresponding to the message of what we already know is true from God, then, then that's certainly a false prophecy. Could there be exhibit saying, like the case of Micaiah, when he's in presence of the Lord and a lying spirit goes out to deceive Ahab? Could that be kind of a similar uh, example there? Yeah, um, certainly. I mean, God wanted Ahab to be deceived so that he could punish him. God allowing a false prophet to succeed. Sure. Seth? I'm trying to remember the chapter in Jeremiah where, where there are prophets that are saying, you guys are just fine. Jeremiah saying, no, it's not. And Jeremiah says, well, I hope those other prophets are, are correct, but history is against you. Every Jeremiah time, 28. Okay, thank you. But it seems like every time God sends a prophet, it's to warn the people that they're not living up to God's standards. If people are, are, are preaching that the health and wealth gospel, that everything that you do, you're just fine the way that you are, uh, don't worry about it, God loves you, then it's a good indication that they're not really a prophet because God sends prophets and teachers who, who try to help you be more like God. 
not more like the way that you already are. <coughs> yeah, that's exactly right. A prophet who would say smooth, uh, encouraging things to sinful people is clearly outside of the prophetic mainstream teaching. That was Hananiah in Jeremiah 28. And so that is, that's exactly right. You know, a true prophet of God would not encourage people to sin. And then he died. Yeah. <laughs> Hananiah said the people and the utensils will come back within two years. He actually ended up dying within two months. Josh? Are there specific uh, prophecies of destruction that God relented from that didn't come true? Yes. That's based on a principle. 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed is an obvious one Nineveh was not destroyed in 40 days but that was because Nineveh repented Jeremiah 18 says that God will change the destiny if the people change so if God says I'm going to destroy you and you repent he'll relent if God said I'm going to bless you and you turn bad then he'll punish you so that is a principle of God when, when we change he'll change his posture toward us that's not, not an unfulfilled prophecy. That's God changing to fit our changing situation. Other questions or comments? Yes, just. Um, so, if a false prophet, uh, if a prophet prophesies something and it doesn't come true, then you know it's false. Or you know it's not from God. But it seems kind of weird because then you'd obviously know that it's not true. And that beforehand, if you're believing that, how would you know until it actually comes true? Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Right. That the test of whether or not what he says comes true, it may be a while before you know that, uh, which is the point was made earlier as well, really. That's only one test. But if it doesn't come true, then that, that knocks them out. But there, if it's a far, the far future, that in itself is not going to help you a whole lot. You're going to need to look at other things. What was that passage that you said for the Lord changing his mind? Jeremiah 18? 18. Yes, 18, 1 to 12. Great passage on that. It's where he goes to the potter, potter's house, and, and he gives really that doctrine, that principle teaching that God adapts his treatment of us to how we are, how we are living. I think that's a, just a constant principle. Um, it really explains how God is unchanging and changes. You know, God in principle is unchanging. He does not repent. God changes, though, and he repents in the sense that he responds to changes we make. And that doesn't change him, but it changes how he responds to us because he authentically interacts with us according to our behavior at the moment. That, that, that's really an interesting thing about how God has chosen to deal with us. You know, God could deal with us like saying, well, I know what's going to happen to you. I don't know what they're gonna, how they're going to turn out, so I'll start punishing them now. <laughs> you know, or something like that. He doesn't do that. God does know the future, but he actually deals with us only as we manifest certain characteristics. Other comments or questions? 
We're just living in amazing times to think about how we have this full revelation that they desire to look into. And even Peter says that the angels in First Peter 1, 12, desire to look into and, and that the full revelation we have now, and yet we just don't really fully appreciate it. We are more interested in our YouTube and phones and everything else than the full revelation of God. And it's, you know, to our shame that we have this incredible gift. Amen. We certainly do. Um, I love preaching through Psalm 119, which is even pre-New Testament, but talks about the amazing nature of the Word. We just can't treasure it enough. Yes. In verse 19, what is being required of them? Keeps the words, or what? Well, uh, he'll punch him. Yeah, he says, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words and should speak in my, my name, I myself will require it of him. In other words, God is going to judge him, God will punish him for not obeying the words of the true prophet, particularly Jesus. Okay. All right, chapter 19, uh, verses 1 to 14. <laughs>